It's Monday, June 3rd. I'm Oscar Ramirez in Los Angeles, and this is The Daily Dive. The country has experienced another mass shooting, and this time 12 people have lost their lives in Virginia Beach. Dwayne Craddock was a public utilities engineer who put his two weeks notice in earlier in the day before he indiscriminately shot at others in a municipal building. The investigation is still ongoing and no motive has been found. My producer Miranda joins us for what we know about this latest tragedy. Next, President Trump has opened up the trade war to a second front, announcing 5% tariffs on all Mexican imports until the country does more to stop the flow of immigrants passing through Mexico to the United States. The president is also on a five-day tour in the UK and is meeting with Queen Elizabeth and the outgoing Prime Minister Theresa May, who is dealing with Brexit chaos. Ginger Gibson, political reporter for Reuters, joins us to break it all down. Finally, it's one of the most popular pages on the internet. But behind the scenes, editors are fighting a brutal war over every word. Donald Trump's Wikipedia page is a war zone for editors who are trying to include the latest meaningful news, all while fighting off hackers and each other. Aaron Mack, writer at Slate, joins us for a look into how the president's Wikipedia page is handled. It's news without the noise. Let's dive in. This is the most devastating day in the history of Virginia Beach. The people involved are our friends, co-workers, neighbors, colleagues. We will not be defined by this horror. We are a city of resiliency and resolve. Joining me now is my producer, Miranda. The country has unfortunately experienced another mass shooting, and this time 12 people have lost their lives in Virginia Beach. Dwayne Craddock was a public utilities engineer who put in his two weeks notice Earlier in the day, before he indiscriminately started shooting at others in the municipal building where he was working, the investigation is still ongoing. No motive has been found. Miranda, what do we know about what happened? The police were able to arrive at the building within two minutes of the call going out for shots fired. Just after 4 p.m. on Friday afternoon, Dwayne Craddock had arrived at Building 2 and immediately shot a contractor who was in the parking lot. And he was only there to file a permit with the city. I know. Talk about bad (laughs) luck. Sad. He next killed a woman who was on her way out of the office before using his employee badge to access the building's second floor and then started shooting indiscriminately. It was really challenging for the police to find him because the building was made in the 70s in what they call a honeycomb design. And essentially, it's a maze to people who are unfamiliar with the layout. So they had a really tough time not only finding the suspect, but also finding victims and wounded people. They said when uh, survivors were escorted out, they had to obviously walk over bodies of their yeah. co-workers and things. It's just so sad. Five to eight minutes after entering the building, police officers were able to encounter Craddock on the second floor. They immediately engaged in a gun battle and eventually the shooting stopped. Police were able to confront him in an office. They broke down the door, engaged him with fire And he was subdued 36 minutes after that first call to police went out. That's how long it took to get him down. Officers tried to then render aid to save his life, but he died on the way to the hospital. I mean, the officers did a great job. They got there quickly, but that's how long this fight took. Tons of gunfire going back and forth. What do we know about the victims? They're all former co-workers of his. They're all people that he knew. There's no evidence to say that he was targeting somebody specifically just yet. The 12 victims killed in the attack are Richard H. Nettleton. He was Craddock's boss hours before Mr. Nettleton was killed. Craddock told him he was quitting for personal reasons via email. There was Herbert Snelling. He was the contractor who was just trying to file a permit. That's when he got shot. Mm -hmm. Lakita Brown, Mary Louise Gale, and Alexander Mikhail Gusev were all right-of-way agents who worked for the city's public works department. 
Tara Gallagher, Christopher Rapp, they're engineers with the City Public Works Department. Joshua O'Hardy was an engineering technician in the Public Works Department. Ryan Keith Cox, he was an account clerk in the Public Utilities Department. Michelle Langer was an administrative assistant in Public Utilities. And Bobby Williams, he's a 41-year veteran in the Public Utilities Department and a special projects coordinator. In addition to the 12 people we just named killed, there were other victims wounded. All have had several surgeries and remain in critical condition, except for one who's in fair condition. Everything that's been out from the investigation so far, they say we don't have anything glaring. There's nothing that necessarily stands out about why he would do this. He did put in his two weeks notice early in the day. Mm -hmm. That's why his employee badge was still active. That's why he was able to access the building. But they've been able to touch base with some neighbors and his parents. What did they have to say? The neighbors said that by all accounts, he was a normal guy, just kind of recluses. He kept to himself. He used to be married and he had a wife who was very social and outgoing. She would talk to people and they often said that they would see her walking the dogs around the complex. But they got divorced a couple of years ago. And one neighbor reported never even having seen the shooter carry groceries in his apartment. But there's one creepy detail about where he lived is that he had cameras set up facing outside of the windows. And I know that doesn't sound strange in this world of smart cameras, doorbell, whatever, but they were pointed at the parking lot. People think it was maybe to keep an eye on his cars or something. He had two guns, two 45 caliber pistols that were found at the scene, one that the shooter bought in 2016 and one in 2018. One of the pistols had a suppressor on it and several empty extended magazines. That's why that was such a long gun battle. They found a bunch more weapons at his home, but that's it. That's really all we know right now. It's just another tragedy that the country has had to go to. CNN reached out to the shooter's parents to ask if they knew of any problems that their son was having with his employer. And the parents said that they had no clue. They thought everything was fine. And later they posted a handwritten note on their front door saying, we are grieving the loss of our loved one. At this time, we wish to focus on the victims and the lives lost during yesterday's tragic event. Our thoughts and prayers are with the families of those who lost their lives and recovering in the hospital. Even at work, he was an employee in good standing. Everything was fine. So it's just a total mystery. So we'll keep following this one as it progresses. Thank you, Miranda. Thanks, Oscar. It's absolutely deadly serious. In fact, I fully expect these these tariffs to go on to at least the 5% level uh, on June 10th. The president is deadly serious about fixing the situation at the southern border. The numbers are huge. The situation is real. And the president is deadly serious about fixing the problem. Joining us now is Ginger Gibson, political reporter for Reuters. The president seems to be opening up the trade war on another front now. He's going to be imposing tariffs on Mexico. On Sunday, he called Mexico an abuser of the United States and warned that if the country doesn't do more to stop the invasion of the southern border, that these tariffs would force companies based in Mexico to be brought back to the U.S. He said these tariffs could be increased up to 25 percent. What do we know about this new front on the trade war? This would be a new round of tariffs on more products that Americans buy every day, some of which you might not even realize are coming across the border. There's so much trade that goes on with component pieces, things that are partially made in America, partially made outside of America. The president wants Mexico to stop migrants from Central American countries from coming through Mexico into the U.S. border seeking asylum. He's been trying to stop these migrants. Basically, his 
entire presidency, and so far he's been stymied. These are people who are fleeing war-torn, ravaged countries, and there are rules that the Americans have signed on to for a long time that allow asylum and them to seek asylum in the United States. These would be tariffs on goods brought in from Mexico. Mick Mulvaney, the White House chief of staff, said on Sunday morning the president is deadly serious about this and could raise the price of everything from agriculture goods to refrigerators and cars and air conditioning units, many of the sort of home products that get brought into the United States every day. Mick Mulvaney was the spin guy over the weekend trying to say that this would be positive for the economy. You know, American taxpayers are paying hundreds of billions of dollars for illegal immigrants. And with these tariffs, we might be able to balance some things out. But we're going through this with China right now. Mexico is like our biggest backup source of imports. So where is the pain going to be felt when this starts ramping up? I have no doubt American consumers pay for these tariffs. It's not like producers in Mexico are going to just eat the cost of tariffs. They will be built into the price of things that we as American consumers purchase. President Trump has argued that that's not the case. Furthermore, we've seen in every instance where the president has levied tariffs in, a, in an effort to get a country to do something he wants them to do. So this is not necessarily tariffs of olden days where they were they were done in trade disputes, but to get them to do something else like we saw in China, like our scene currently unfold in Mexico, those prices have, have been met with retaliatory tariffs. And that's a real risk here too, that goods in America that we export to Mexico, and there are a lot of agricultural goods that we send to Mexico that they could put tariffs on that would really hurt farmers. And, and the economy is not individual little silos. Anything that disrupts one piece can have reverberating effects through the entire economy. And and economists are very concerned that another round of tariffs to trade wars could be something that has far-reaching impacts on the economy, even people who might not think of themselves as being particularly affected by trade. Let's get a preview of what's happening for the rest of this week. The president is on a five-day trip to the UK. He's kind of going into some hostile territory. There's planned protests. He's going to have a banquet with Queen Elizabeth. He's going to have afternoon tea with the Prince of Wales. Tell us what's going on for his trip. We know from when the president leaves the country that other countries that want to be well received by him or that want something from the United States tend to roll out all of the pomp and circumstance. They know that the president really likes all of the pomp and circumstance and being treated like a visiting dignitary. We've seen that particularly when he's in Asian nations. This is a bit of a different circumstance as he heads to England for starters, they're a country in their own turmoil. Brexit has really rocked the UK. They have not figured out how they're going to get out of Europe. Theresa May, the prime minister, has announced her resignation. She's basically a lame duck. She's going to meet with him on Tuesday and then she's gone on Friday. And they have a lot of stuff to talk about, trade, things like that. Is it even worth it for him to negotiate anything at that point? On top of which, he's sort of meddled in, in the discussion about her replacement by saying he backs Boris Johnson. So this is not a, a prime minister empowered to make uh, decisions or maybe even motivated to negotiate with the president. Add to that, as many of your listeners know, the, the English have a queen who right. is their head of state, who does all the sort of visiting dignitary pomp and circumstance. The president insulted her daughter-in-law, our granddaughter-in-law this week. So there's been a lot of, of turmoil around that portion of the visit as he's supposed to meet with the with the royal family. The president 
Frank's going to be there with all of his children. And then this is going to be this weird, awkward moment, I guess, when they all meet. It's like, what do we talk about? Well, you know, it's it's all in the news. You called Meghan Markle nasty. You know, it's going to be super awkward when that happens. You know, that's a word the president has used when women say things critical of him. He has invoked it for his political opponents. He's invoked it for other women in entertainment. And Meghan Markle was an American actress who had no ties to the British uh, royal family at the time when she called the president divisive and said she wouldn't vote for him and a misogynist. She called him a misogynist. And when read those quotes, President Trump said, well, I didn't know she was nasty. So he has tried to argue that the media is misrepresenting his remarks. It's very clear in the in the tape recordings that he said she was nasty. It clearly trying to put that out because it, it may be that it's causing them a little bit of problems as they're planning this visit. Ginger Gibson, political reporter for Reuters. Thank you very much for joining us. Thanks for having me. They hacked into senior editors' accounts. So these are the editors that can directly edit the article. And they kept replacing the main picture of Trump on the page with a picture of male genitalia. Joining us now is Aaron Mack, the writer who covers tech for Slate.com. Think about whenever you're doing a research project or you just need some information on something. What's one of the first pages you always end up on? It's usually a Wikipedia page. And with this president... He has one of the most popular pages on the Internet and behind the scenes, there's editors constantly fighting these brutal wars over every single word that goes into that. As we know, you know, Wikipedia takes in edits from all over the place. You can just sign up, you can submit edits. But with the president's page in particular, it goes through so many different levels There's even an administrator talk forum where they debate back and forth what actually will make it in there. Tell us a little bit about how this all works, Aaron. Wikipedia allows anyone to edit any of its pages. So you basically go to a talk page forum where you can submit edits for a certain page. And for something like the Trump page, which is a really important page, people have to approve it first. So you'll go to a forum and say, I think we should add a paragraph about Trump's decision on North Korea or Syria. And then people will discuss whether or not it should be included. And from there, they will make the edits to the page. Even the people there at Wikipedia fully understand it. You know, they're trying to be an encyclopedia. They're not in competition specifically with newspapers. And they even have like a name for it where people are getting a little too caught up in trying to put every little detail that happens. You know, the the Trump presidency is making news every day. So how do you discern what you should put in the actual Wikipedia page is a huge topic of discussion all the time. Yeah, it's really, really hard to write an encyclopedia article about a president during his presidency, because as you said, things are happening all the time. You don't know what's going to be important from a historical point of view. And it seems like the Trump administration in particular produces a lot of news. So it's exhausting to follow everything to try to pick out what's going to be uh, important. So I think what they try to do is they'll wait for a little bit. So they'll wait a week or two weeks to try to see if something is like a one day story or if it has lasting implications and the fallout seems like it's worthy of putting into the page. Yeah. One instance in particular was after the president had his summit in Helsinki with Russian President Vladimir Putin, the administrators were going back and forth whether they should include it and whether they should include some of the criticism because the president had said at the time that he didn't see any reason why Russia would have interfered in the 2016 election, despite all of the evidence that was gathered by the intelligence community. And the administrators there in Wikipedia 
were having a really hard time whether to decide to include that stuff or not. The editors were having a tough time trying to decide whether this was something that journalists just overreacting to, whether the press was just cooking up a huge scandal to attack the president because a lot of the editors on the page think that the press is inherently biased against Trump. And a lot of other people saw that, you know, this is really important. This is a president who is siding with an explanation given by a foreign president, even though his own intelligence community had gathered a lot of evidence to the contrary. So eventually they did end up putting in the Helsinki summit, but it took a lot of debate and they actually did end up waiting for around 10 days before they actually included that in the page. Let's talk about the hierarchy of Wikipedia administrators and people that can throw in edits there. There's administrators, there's arbitrators, there's an unofficial editorial board for the president's Wikipedia page also. Because the Trump page is so high profile, you can't have just have any run go and make an edit to the page. That would be just crazy. So if you want to make an edit to the page, you either have to have at least 30 days of tenure and 50 edits on other articles to be deemed worthy to make a direct edit to the page. If you don't have those credentials, then you have to submit suggestions to the talk page and then higher ranking editors can decide whether or not they want to put those edits into the article. So above the users, and the users with experience are administrators. So these are people who are voted in by their community and they can make decisions to override things that are happening. They can call out bad behavior. And then there's a, another higher tier of arbitrators. So that's a group of 13 editors. They're kind of like the Supreme Court of Wikipedia that can make final <laughs> lasting decisions. It's not immune to being hacked in and of itself. Also, there was a moment last November where vandals hacked into it. And what did they do to the picture on the president's main page? A vandal or vandals, I don't know if we know for sure. They hacked into senior editors' accounts. So these are the editors that can directly edit the article. And they kept replacing the main picture of Trump on the page with a picture of male genitalia. And what happened was people who were asking Siri about Trump, his age, Siri would pull up a picture of male genitalia because Siri gets its answers from Wikipedia. People can hack back into it. So I think they put like a mm -hmm. full stop on anything that anybody could edit at that time just to get it under control. And there's only been a few times where Wikipedia, main Wikipedia administrators put a full stop on these things. As far as who these people are that get to make the most edits, do they get paid for this stuff? Do you get paid to be a Wikipedia administrator, arbitrator, any of these people? No, it's all volunteer, which is kind of crazy when you think how much work they put into this. Yeah. It's kind of a hobby for them, but a lot of debating, a lot of keeping up with the news, a lot of writing. I, I can't imagine putting this much work into something for free, but I guess these people kind of love it. So. And in these talk forums where they're really debating what to put into this encyclopedic journal of what's happening you know, for the president, they're going back and forth. Sometimes it takes a few weeks. It takes a lot of time. And they're just going back and forth, really pleading for their argument, whether something should be submitted or not. I think one of the people said that when you reach a point where half of the people really hate it and the other half hate it also, that's when it should go. And that's when it actually makes the most amount of sense. Wikipedia likes to promote all of this research that says that the more people who get involved in an article, the more neutral it becomes. I guess the idea is that as more people bring their point of view to an article, it'll start to reflect like the wider consensus around a certain topic and it'll become more neutral. Although the way it works out on the Donald Trump page is you just keep fighting and fighting. And ultimately, everyone does not have a version of the article that they would truly like, but they've come to a grudging consensus over what seems somewhat fair to everyone. Where does Wikipedia land as far as a real type of, not necessarily news organization, but a news gathering site? Like uh, how credible have they become over the years? 
I mean, I think it's become very credible. It's, it's usually the third or fourth page that shows up when you search Trump. And they cite everything that they write on there. So I don't think that you should take whatever's on there just at, at its word. But you can look at the source that they're taking this information from. There are processes where they've established a way to put out reliable information. And you can check that information to see if it's actually true or not. Aaron Mack, covering tech for Slate.com. Thank you very much for joining us. Thanks so much for having me. That's it for today. Join us on social media at Daily Dive Pod on Twitter and Daily Dive Podcast on Facebook. Leave us a comment, give us a rating, and tell us the stories that you're interested in. Follow us on iHeartRadio or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. The Daily Dive is produced by Miranda Moreno and engineered by Tony Sorrentino. I'm Oscar Ramirez, and this was your Daily Dive.